Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Check out our great selection of garage and utility lighting options. In stock, ready to take home today. We carry everything to help you illuminate whatever project you're working on. Shop garage and utility lighting products in store at your nearest Menards. You can also view all of our entire selection of lighting options today on Menards.com. Save big money at Welcome to the Elisa Childers podcast, where we equip Christians to identify the core beliefs of historic Christianity, discern its counterfeits, and proclaim the gospel with clarity, kindness, and truth. And today's episode is brought to us by Impact 360 Institute, where they create life-changing experiences for students. Go to impact360.org to learn more. Now, today, I'm very excited to bring you a discussion I had with Dr. Erwin Lutzer. We've had him on the podcast before to talk about his book, We Will Not Be Silenced, about Christians living out their faith in a culture that's becoming increasingly more hostile to Christian beliefs. Well, he's just written a new book called No Reason to Hide, and he's going to be talking about that with us today. I loved this conversation that I had with Dr. Lutzer. He has so many years of wisdom under his belt, uh, such well-researched material, but he talks about everything in this book, talking about progressive Christianity, deconstruction. Construction, the LGBTQ plus activism that we see in our culture right now, wokeness, social justice, all the things. There is nothing that he shies away from talking about in this book and in this interview that you're about to hear. Some highlights for me was when he talked about propaganda and how language today is being used as propaganda. I found that portion of the conversation to be incredibly enlightening. So I'm really excited to bring that to you. He talks about diversity, equity, and inclusion and how those policies actually fail to help minorities So and actually kind of promote discrimination. So we talked about all these really interesting things and um, how social justice is even being used as a Trojan horse in the church and how dangerous an ideology it is. So I'm very excited to bring that to you, but I want to let you know about some upcoming guests we're going to be having on the podcast. We're going to be having some really great discussions, so be sure and subscribe wherever you're listening, whether it's Apple, Google, Spotify, YouTube. Subscribe. If you're watching on YouTube, click the bell icon to be notified every time we release a new video because we have some really great conversations you're not going to want to miss. We're going to be talking with Dan Kimball. Dan was one of the early founders of the emergent movement that morphed into progressive Christianity, although early on, Dan couldn't uh, go along with what was happening. So he had to split from that movement, and he has some really great wisdom to share with us about his experience and how we can be aware of the progressive shift today um, as somebody who really lived through it the first time. We're going to be talking to Andreas Viget, uh, Viget, I think it is, Andreas Viget, who um, is sort of a specialist on the theology of Kenneth Copeland. And we were talking and we realized that this is going to be a fun episode. Kenneth Copeland and Richard Rohr have some very similar views when it comes to creation, and that view would be panentheism. So that's going to be an episode you're not going to want to miss. We're also going to be talking with Dr. Everett Piper, who has been in the, I, I would say, the ring of fighting against wokeness and the social justice ideologies for a very long time. So he's going to come on and share some of his wisdom with us. So be sure you subscribe so that you can know when those episodes are coming out, because we don't want you to miss them. All right, without anything further, I am very excited to give you this conversation I had with Dr. Erwin Lutzer.
Well, Dr. Lutzer, I am I have been so excited about this conversation, and I want to just thank you so much for writing this book, No Reason to Hide. Uh, you really brought the fire with this one. And uh, so we talked a couple years ago about your wildly popular book, We Will Not Be Silenced. And we this was just right in the wake of COVID and George Floyd, and all of these things were happening, the chaos and culture. And now two years later, you come out with No Reason to Hide. Stand, I love the subtitle, Standing for Christ in a Collaboration culture. And I'd love if you could just share with us, you know, what what were the developments in culture that, you know, prompted you to write uh, sort of a companion, I don't know if you would call this a companion or a follow-up to We Will Not Be Silenced. Well, you know, Elisa, I looked over the culture and asked myself the question, what kind of issues does the church really face? And, you know, as you look at culture, you realize, of course, that we are in a battle. And by the way, We didn't choose this battle. It's not as if we as Christians went out looking for a fight. The culture has come to us and it cannot be avoided. And this interview, I'm sure, will make that very, very clear. So I looked at it and I said, well, DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion, the rise of the self, and then, of course, the whole idea of collective demonization, how today... For example, if you're a chemistry professor, even if you have a PhD and you're a good teacher and you apply at a university, you'll be asked whether or not you go along with multiple pronouns and whether or not you're buying into the whole woke agenda. It never used to be that way. And then, of course, in addition to that, I discuss this question. What do we do with those people who say you ought to feel guilty because you have stolen the land? So I deal with that issue, and that's not dealt with, of course, in my other book. There are a bunch of new issues in this one. And then one of my favorite topics, and that has to do with the whole business of how language is used in propaganda. And I hope we get a chance to talk about that. And then, you know, the whole issue of trans and uh, how, how parents should be able to help their children If a child comes to them and says, you know, I think I'm trans, then I deal with uh, education in the schools and then the Great Reset. But maybe one of the most important chapters is the last one on how to suffer for Christ Mm. and consider it to be a badge of honor. We as Americans need to rethink our view of suffering for Christ. You know, that, that is such an important point because as we see it seems to be in culture, there's all this chaos going on as it would relate to race and American history and the propaganda of language and the sexual ideologies that are out there. But there's also, at the same time, there seems to be this idea that your life is just about you. It's about you being happy, chasing your dreams, uh, being personally fulfilled in every possible area. It's just kind of like the God of self. And I agree with you. I think that Christianity offers the best answer to suffering, gives ap- you know absolute purpose in our suffering. So I definitely want to talk about that. But I'd love to start with the propaganda piece, because this is something I've been thinking a lot about. You know, Dr. Lutzer, when I go around and speak, probably the number one 
sentiment that is relayed to me from people who work in places like public schools and businesses, people that are not in full-time ministry, is this issue of having to go through the diversity, equity, inclusion training or being forced to use pronouns of other people or declare their own. Um, and of course, teachers in, pri in public schools are facing such a battle. You know, Alisa, you actually raised two separate questions, and I don't know exactly which one to attack first, but let's talk about propaganda. And then, lest I forget, please ask me about the whole trans phenomenon, okay? Oh, yes. Well, let's talk about propaganda first. Remember that the purpose of propaganda is to so shape people's view of reality that even when confronted with a mountain of evidence, they will not change their minds. In other words, propaganda has to work that way. And one of the reasons I have such an interest in it is because of my interest in Hitler. Some of you might know that I wrote a book entitled Hitler's Cross, which is still for sale, where I talked about all the cultural streams that brought about Nazi Germany, the response of the church and so forth. But Hitler said, with the right use of propaganda, we can make heaven appear like hell and hell appear like heaven. What you need for propaganda, of course, is first of all, an enemy. Hitler said that the burning of the Reichstag was a gift from the gods because then what he could do is he could clamp down, take away personal rights because of fear, because mm -hmm. of fear of an enemy, even though, of course, we know that that um, burning of the Reichstag was very probably done by him and one of his henchmen, of course, but the point to be made is simply this, that language is used in such a way to bring about these changes. Well, since we're talking about propaganda and we're talking about absurdity, remember in the last part of the book, and I mentioned this in the book that we're talking about today, No Reason to Hide. Remember in the last part of 1984, George Orwell's book, Winston is taken into a room and he is told that two plus two is equal to five. Sometimes it's equal to three and sometimes it is both. Now I've thought about that. And at the end of the book, you remember he ends up loving big brother, which is mm -hmm. fascinating. But what they wanted to do is to get Winston comfortable with living with lies. So in order to have propaganda, you have to live with lies. And everybody knows that we are living with lies and expected to. Men can have babies too, or a woman can be a man and a woman can be a father or that a student, you know, can be a cat. Absurdity. And, I, and this comes to mind as I'm answering your question. You know, Anne Rand was not a fan of Christianity but she often said some very wise things. She said it's possible to avoid reality, but you can't avoid the consequences mm. of avoiding reality. Absolutely profound. But back to propaganda. So how is language used? Well, first of all, it's used in slogans. And behind the slogan, there is a hidden meaning. But let me give you another example that I use. And that is in one of our universities that I quote in the book, where it goes on to say, here are some banned words. You can't say policeman, you can't say freshman, and it goes down the list. And by the way, if there's a barber shop in your area, 
You can't say that he takes in walk-ins because you might offend some people who can't walk. After all, there yeah. are people in wheelchairs. Now, Elisa, let's just take a deep breath and figure out what is going on here. Is the intention to elevate the discussion? Of course not. It is intended to shut down the discussion. It is intended to silence students. Nobody knows what is right, you, right or wrong. Can we still go into a restaurant and ask for a menu? <laughs> Can <laughs> women still have a manicure? <laughs> Nobody knows. Yeah. And so, as Orwell points out, words are used to narrow the realm of thought in such a way that you are in this ditch, so to speak, and you can't get out of it. And eventually, you won't even have the vocabulary to get out yeah. of it. So that's one way in which it is used. And we could go on. I think I list six different ways that language is used in propaganda. Let me give you one other and then we can move on to the transgender, uh, transgender subject that mm -hmm. you brought up. Let me give you one other, and that is how words are used in such a way that you don't have to discuss ideas, mm. you transfer them and they become mental states. For example, you're pro-life, you hate women. You believe in strong borders, and I, in my book I argue as to why we should have strong borders, but you believe in strong borders? Well, you know what? You're racist. And when you, um, you know, if you are opposed to same-sex marriage, you're a bigot. The other day on TV, someone who's very famous said this. I won't name her, but she would be known to your audience. She said, we would not have an environmental crisis if, um, if we didn't have racism. Mm. How do you connect those? Yeah. The way some of these people reason is, if it walks like a duck, quacks like a duck, and lays duck eggs, it must be a camel. So, <laughs> so we're living in a very irrational age. Mm -hmm. So those are some of the ways in which language is used to uh, do propaganda. And then the other thing, of course, is to use a small event and to paint with a broad brush and make it uh, something that is applying to everyone, etc. So we must recognize that we are in an age, an information age, and as a result, propaganda really is everywhere. And I can also respond, I'm giving you a long answer here, <laughs> but I can also respond as to how we as Christians should respond to propaganda and mm -hmm. understand that we always have to get back to the Word of God. As a matter of fact, I'm going to give you this illustration right now. And then, Elisa, we'll talk about transgenderism. <laughs> uh, here in Chicago, a young pastor at Moody Church, he and his wife were having their first baby. He was in the delivery room, and the little baby was stuck in the birth canal suddenly panicked throughout the room. And of course he panicked too. But a doctor came over to him and looked him square in the eye, just like I hope everyone who's watching this looks me square in the eye and said this, in a moment, there are gonna be 20 people in this delivery room. There's gonna be a lot of buzz, but relax. We've been here before 
and we know what we are doing and everything is going to be okay. And you know, we can watch CNN from early morning to late at night. We can watch Fox News from early morning to late at night. And it will not feed our soul. It will inform us. And you and I, especially, we watch a lot of news because we write about these things. But there are times when we just need to back off, get into the Bible and remember that God says, don't worry, I know what I am doing and everything is going to be okay. Well, I want to talk to you about our first sponsor today, and that's Impact 360 Institute. As we mentioned at the beginning, they create life-changing experiences for students. They have summer programs and also a nine-month gap year program. I teach at all of the events, but the one I really want to encourage you to consider today is the Propel event. This is one week. If you have a student in your life, in your family, who is looking for some kind of a summer camp experience, I can't recommend this highly enough. It's a great introduction into the ministry of Impact 360. It's only one week where your student is going to be discipled. They're going to be taught great apologetics and theology life skills, how to live as a Christian in a culture that's becoming increasingly hostile to our beliefs. I am one of the teachers that will be there. So if you send your student to Propel this summer, I will get to meet them and spend a day with them. I always look forward to it. It's the highlight of my year to get to go to Impact 360 and really apply a lot of the things I'm learning throughout the year to the lives of young people and what they're facing in their specific cultural moment. So I want to offer you a great discount today. If you go to impact360.org, use the code PODCAST. That's PODCAST in all caps at checkout. That's going to give you $50 off. That is a great discount. And this is a great opportunity to introduce your student to Impact 360. And then I am sure if they do the Propel experience, they're going to want to do more experiences in the years to come. And so go to impact360.org. Again, use the code PODCAST, all caps PODCAST, at checkout for $50 off. Well, that's comforting. (laughs) That's good. Now, uh, I, I am going to answer your question about transgenderism. Well, let me and- let me pop in. I promise we'll talk about transgender in just a second because that's a topic that has been really in my heart and mind lately. But I do want to just comment a little bit on the language because I think this is so important. When I go out, in fact, this kind of ties us into the transgender conversation. Um, but when I go out and speak, uh, one of the questions I'm asked very often if we do a Q&A or something like that is somebody will say, what do we do about pronouns? Because for my kids' generation, my kids are 14 and 11, and it's the number one uh, issue that they're facing is the the radical gender theory, trans ideology, and the pronouns. Because they, uh, for, for my kids' generation, and I, I tell people, you cannot shelter them from this. You can lock them inside your house, and they're still going to hear about it, even if they're not, they don't have access to screens. It is just absolutely everywhere. And so what I tell people with the pronouns is, you know, it's really not that difficult. You just, you don't live by lies. 
That's when somebody else is forcing you to tell a lie, that's the line. You don't have to live by lies. And it's amazing how language is used in this way to to twist. And uh, another example of that is just in my personal life, I love to cook, make sourdough bread. So I, I'm baking bread all the time. I love to do that. So I follow some Instagram accounts of people who make sourdough bread and some schools and things like that. And I saw this post yesterday, Dr. Lutzer. I couldn't believe it. It was, it was taking the word justice and just twisting it up into something else. And it said um, the Post was lamenting the fact that, that sales of white, like mass manufactured white bread are up. And they said this is a food justice issue. They said because this white bread is bad for people and it's, you know, it's not very digestible, whatever they thought was wrong with the mass manufactured white bread, they said this is actually an injustice and they called it food injustice because poor people can afford it. And so it's unjust to them to not make the better bread affordable to them. So, you know, what, what do you, what are we, what, I, I know that this is something a lot of people face when they're scrolling through Instagram. Explain what is going on when they're calling white bread sales being up food injustice. Well, that's a new one for me, but I do want to comment about the pronoun situation mm -hmm. first. If Bert was born a boy, and now he wants to be called Betty, I would call him Betty, and the reason is because names are not gendered. And as a matter of fact, many couples today name their girls, their baby girls, by what we used to call boys' names. But if you ask me to use the pronoun she for Bert, I can't do that. I'm with you on that. You don't live by lies. And what you try to do is to help them to understand, oh, you have your truth, and I'm supposed to respect that, but you also have to respect my truth because uh, my truth says I can't say what I know mm -hmm. to be false. And so what you have to do is, if anything, maybe never use the pronouns, always call him uh, Betty or whatever name he wants, and uh, get around the pronouns like that. But you cannot in good conscience as a Christian call a boy a she. That's where I draw the line. Now, justice. Oh, my justice. <laughs> <laughs> you know, people today say um, everything is a justice issue. If you want to attract attention, and to get people on your side, just call it a justice issue. Now, here's the problem. When justice is severed from the Bible and God's righteousness, when that happens, justice can go in any direction people want. Even in the book of uh, Judges, you know, when the people, the Bible says, they did that which was right in their own eyes, we could translate that, they did that which was just in their own eyes. So the word justice is being misused today and applied to everything and every agenda imaginable. For example, you have marriage justice, which is same-sex marriage. You have reproductive justice. Reproductive justice is, of course, abortion. You have... Um, all the issues of, uh, you know, the whole issue of the border. You have that justice. 
You have immigration justice. That's the word I was searching for. And now you have bread justice. One of the most important verses in all the Bible, and I wish I had looked this up before I came on today because uh, it's a very important verse. I do think I have the reference. Isaiah 59, verse 12. It could be verse 14, where it says this. Righteousness stands afar off, and justice is not allowed to enter because truth has stumbled in the Mm. public square. Mm. So unless we get back to biblical truth, people can tag that word justice onto any agenda that they want. And what we need to do, and this is why the social justice thing is so complicated. You know, there are people who say, well, shouldn't you be in in uh, favor of justice, you know, what does the Lord your God require of you but to do justice? Well, yes, but it's biblical justice. And that has to do with equal opportunity. It has to do with equality before the law. It even has to do with giving to the poor. It has to do with those things. But biblical justice, using that word, can't be tagged onto any agenda that we want and justify it and say that this is a just cause. All right, I wanna share a little bit with you about our next sponsor and that is Good Ranchers. I love Good Ranchers, I've said it. Guys, not only is the quality of the meat so good, but you don't have to go to the grocery store and watch your grocery bill increase every week with inflation. Because if you sign up with Good Ranchers, which is a home meat delivery service, it shows up right on your door, frozen, ready to go in the freezer so you can pull it out when you're ready to make your meals. You are going to lock in the price of your subscription for the life of your subscription. That means it won't be affected by inflation. Whatever you sign up for today, that is going to be your monthly bill for the life of your subscription. And let me just tell you, it is such good quality meat. You have grass-fed beef. You have better-than-organic chicken, heritage-breed pork. Can we just talk about the bacon? The bacon is amazing. And if you sign up in the month of April, you're going to lock in free bacon for a year. That's $240 worth of free bacon that you'll lock in for the year. So you get the lock-in price, you get bacon for a year, and then you can also use the code ALISA, which will give you $20 off your first box. So it's a no-brainer. Go to GoodRanchers.com, use the code ALISA at checkout for $20 off your first box, get that bacon for a year, lock in that price that won't be affected by inflation. So go to GoodRanchers.com, use the code ELISA, American Meat Delivered. Yeah, and all of these categories seem to be sort of collapsing in into the same thing. Like you have the justice, you have uh, trans ideology, radical gender theory, the wokeness when it comes to even discussions having to do with uh, race and things like you mentioned, uh, you know, giving the land back. How do we navigate that conversation? And I'd like to just sort of um, talk a bit about the transgender ideology because one of the things that has really just 
lit me up lately as far as just what I've been really interested in and kind of I've been awakened to the social contagion aspect of the transgender ideology and it's specifically how that's affecting young girls. Of course, we know it's not just girls that are being affected, but um, young preteen teenage girls are being affected at um you know, just more dramatic rates than young men. And of course, you know, prior to recent times, there were always people who had gender dysphoria. It was really quite rare. But today, it seems like, at least among the kids that are my kids' age, that's actually how you fit in. I mean, if you don't have a letter from the LGBTQ you know, rainbow, if you don't get to identify as one of those letters, you're really not in the in crowd. And so it's, it's really like a social contagion among so many of our young people. Why, why do you think that is? And maybe, you know, whatever else you want to say about that topic, uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts. First of all, the reason it's a social contagion is remember this, uh, uh, Lisa, most Christian parents even don't raise their children the culture does. Mm. And the culture does because of the influence of education, the media, and the cell phone. Mm. So you're absolutely right. Many uh, kids consider themselves out of the mainstream unless they're trans. And you and I know, and this is deserving of tears, that many young women have surgery that is really irreversible because they want to become a boy. Now, you just think long-term as to what that really means and how lives are going to be destroyed and are being destroyed. And more of these people are beginning to come out and to let the world know that this is not the direction to go. But now to your question, a teenager comes home and says, mom and dad, I'm trans. What do you do? What do you say? First of all, knowing teenagers, Listen very carefully, because teenagers will not respond to a quick response, especially if it comes judgmentally, and then they'll say, my parents don't really understand me. So listen carefully, but then explain this. Self-perception is not an accurate guide as to who you are. You can go into a psych ward and you can meet people who genuinely believe that they are Napoleon. As a matter of fact, I heard a story one time about a man who said, I am Napoleon. And the man next to him said, who told you that you are Napoleon? He said, God told me that I was Napoleon. And the other guy said, no, I didn't. (laughs) Made this. Self-perception can be wrong. Now, the illustration I use in the book that we're talking about, No Reason to Hide, is that of anorexia. Mm. You and I know that a young woman looks into the mirror and believes that she is overweight when in point of fact, she is starving herself to death. Now, should we say, well, only she knows who she really is. So we should have no input into her life, which is of course the contemporary mantra. You know, only you know who you really are. Well, no, you might be mistaken as to who you are. We have to help our young people to understand that they do not have a body problem. They have a mind problem. And why is it so right that the body should be mutilated to conform to the mind? 
What's wrong with saying that the mind should conform to the body? And you're right. There's a small percentage of people, I read about one in 10,000, who genuinely has gender dysphoria. But now everybody seems to, I mean by everybody, I mean so many of the teenagers, they're all trans. Mm -hmm. And why is it that they are so confused on this point? In the book, I have a chapter on education, particularly as it is here in the state of Illinois. I talk about the pornography and how every sexual deviation that we can think of is normalized. As a matter mm. of fact, the title of the book is It's Perfectly Normal. Now, put yourself in a classroom and you're in fourth or fifth grade. Sexuality, of course, interests you. You're beginning to have sexual desires. You're shown this. You're told it's normal. You know internally because of your conscience and because of your parents probably that this is not the way it's to be. This is sinful. So what happens? You become depressed. You don't know how to handle your shame. Mm -hmm. You don't know how to handle this. And then what you do is you think, you know what? I have so much internal emptiness that I don't really know how to deal with. You know what, mom and dad? I think I'm trans. Maybe if I became a girl, it would finally bring about the kind of peace and unity within me that I am seeking. When in point of fact, the issue has to do with what they are being told. The issue has to do with guilt. And that's why as parents, it is so important for us to help our young people to understand the forgiveness of God and the mm. cleansing of God. That's right. That's right. Because Elisa, you know right well, I don't know the ages of your children, but you know that children are going to see things that they shouldn't see. They're going to be introduced to concepts and images that are destructive. And so there's no use trying to put our heads in the sand, so to speak. What we have to do is to help them to understand that God not only forgives us, but he can cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And the answer to your guilt and to your shame comes through Jesus Christ, our Lord, and you don't have to live that way. So that's the hope of the gospel mm -hmm. in the midst of this very, very confused world. Yeah, and it's absolutely everywhere. Here's an example. Um, recently, it was in the news that American Girl has uh, produced a body image book for young girls, basically answering questions like, you know, how should you feel about your body? They address things like eating disorders. Well, I actually got a copy of the book because I wanted to look at it myself. And I was... I got to say, even though I kind of knew what to expect, I was shocked. They have um, this book is aimed at young preteen teenage girls, and it's basically telling them, hey, your gender identity might not match up with the sex you were assigned at birth. So here's what you should do. Experiment with baggy clothes and a buzzed haircut. Um, maybe you could try some frilly dresses. I mean, basically just telling them to try all the different stereotypes and then pick what they are. And then they elevate. They have, um, you know, stories of different, uh, quote unquote, girls who are in the book actually trans, so they're actually boys. Um, and then they they teach intersectionality. There's a whole uh, page on intersectionality about how your gender, your level of ability, your race, um, all of these different categories 
intersect that make you who you are. I mean, just teaching girls that all of this stuff is your identity. And if your body isn't, if you're not comfortable in your body, you it actually says in the book, you can go uh, to your doctor and get, you know, medications and things that can press the pause button on your puberty. And then it says, if you don't have a trusted adult who will help you with this, there's a list of resources. So they're basically telling these young girls, if your mom and dad aren't on board with your transition, you know, look at page 97 because we're going to give you some resources. So I just wanted to say that for our audience because a lot of people might think, well, this isn't going to come to my house, right? This isn't going to touch the people in my life. But it is it is the number one thing that kids, that my kids age group is facing to the point where it used to be when you'd say, you know, you'd meet somebody for the first time, you'd say, hi, nice to meet you, or something along those lines, or how are you? Um, today, it's, hi, what are your pronouns? I, that's that's the kind of pressure our Christian teenagers are under. It's just the little compromises, the little, uh, the little lies that we concede to one by one. And it kind of reminds me of Christians in the first century, we like to talk about the more, you know, fantastical persecutions like being burned in Nero's gardens and all of that, of course, is is true and inspiring. But, you know, it, it, there was also this sort of daily grind kind of thing where if you were in someone's house, you would be expected to bow to the household idol. If you didn't have, bow to the household god, it was really considered disrespectful and very quite, quite rude. You know, so it, I, I like to equate that with the pronouns because it seems like that's what our culture is asking us to do is just these little tiny little white lies that we concede to that really end up in big lies with things like the American Girl book and just the the ideology that's just pumped into our homes. Elisa, what you have just said is beyond horrible. I had heard about that, but I don't have a copy like you do. And to think that they are telling these impressionable young girls who are trying to find out who they are they're growing up in a world of competition, that they have all of these different options. And of course, kids like to explore. They like to think, well, this is the answer as to who I am. It's totally destructive. As a matter of fact, it is demonic. Mm -hmm. It is demonic because what it wants to do is to destroy these young people, make them confused as to who they are for the rest of their lives. and. Uh, I like what you're saying. I hadn't thought of it quite that way before, but it used to be, what is your name? And now it is, what is your pronouns? As a matter of fact, I read somewhere that the people who tour the White House, they are asked when they come in what their pronouns are. Can you believe that? In other words, in a world of absolute total absurdity. But remember this, all who are listening to us today, you have to realize something. It used to be that absurdity was an argument against something, but we're living in an age in which absurdity no longer can be used as an argument against something. As a matter of fact, the more absurd it is, the more uh, possibly it's going to be implemented. Now, let's think in terms of how ideas work. You know, it's often been said that ideas have consequences and bad ideas have victims. If you take Darwinism, which is taught in the schools that there is no God, that we came up through the impersonal world, remember that Darwin said he knew that we had a side of human nature that was evil. 
He said, Satan came to us through the baboon who is our grandfather. So with baboons as our ancestors, we've come up through the animal world. We are no better than animals, except that we are farther along the continuum, but we're all part of the continuum. We're not created in God's image. What then is there to keep us from saying that a mother should be able to kill her preborn infant or infanticide? When you have animals that are born de, uh, you know, with deformities, you take care of them, put them to sleep. And then of course, on the other side, like is happening in Canada, and I was born in Canada, you know, 10,000 people euthanized, euthanasia. So what arguments do we have in a world in which God does not exist and in which we, in a sense, create ourselves? And this illustration comes to mind, and it really refers to something that you mentioned earlier, and that had to do with the exaltation of the self. And I am the one who determines who I am, and I have no creator. If anything, I create myself. I got this from John Stone Street, and I use it in the book. Imagine, let everyone imagine that you are in a big city and you're lost. But if you have a magnet, if you have a compass, I should say, you know where north is. And if you know where north is, then you know where south is, and you know where east is and west. But let's suppose that you have a magnet in your backpack. So the compass always points to you. You have no idea if you're going in circles. You don't know who you are. You don't know if you've made progress. You don't know if, you know, there's any true north at all. It's all up to you. And you can imagine the confusion that happens in the midst of a world like this. And Marx taught us that the family had to be destroyed because after all, it was the unit of oppression. Men oppressed their wives, children oppressed their parents. They took them to church. God was the ultimate oppressor. So with the breakup of the family, so many young people today have no rudder. They have no north in their life, and they are just adrift. It is indeed, if I might mention the phrase again, deserving of tears. Mm. Boy, isn't that true? Uh, in your book, you have a section that's called How an Evangelical Church Goes Woke. I'd love to talk about that. Um, you you tell a story of a friend of yours uh, where— uh, the church had an all-white staff, but the congregation is diverse, reflecting the makeup of the neighborhood. Um, everybody, white, black, blue-collar, white-collar, professional factory workers, all assemble, focus on the gospel, worship the Lord together. And then you tell the account that your friend gave about when the chaos and culture broke out. Um, talk, talk a little bit about that, because I think that the reason I'm interested in, in your thoughts on this is that back when I was researching progressive Christianity, yes, progressive Christianity was very social justice oriented, and I mean that in like the critical social justice, not biblical justice uh, type of idea. Um, but, you know, generally speaking, you had evangelical churches that were doctrinally sound, and then when the George Floyd thing happened, you started to see 
otherwise doctrinally sound evangelical churches start to embrace this kind of wokeness that the progressive church had been embracing for quite a while. And, uh, you know, I wonder if that's not a bit of a Trojan horse for this these kinds of ideas in the evangelical church. So talk about how does an evangelical church go woke? Well, let me give you a little bit of background. It used to be in the 80s and even the 90s, we were working towards uh, racial unity. And just so that your listeners know, at the Moody Church where I served for 36 years, and I'm sure that this is still true today, on any given Sunday, we had more than 70 different countries of origin represented. And we rejoiced in that because according to Revelation 5, around the throne, there were going to be people from every tongue and people and nation. So we were working toward what was called racial rec uh, reconciliation. But critical race theory came apart and tore everything apart. Mm. And what happened with the death of uh, George Floyd, a tragic death indeed, is suddenly many churches decided to get on the bandwagon, as I reference in the book and as you quote, and now they began to see one another in oppositional terms. Mm -hmm. So whites were being blamed and you have whiteness over against blackness. And of course, social justice does not take into account the human heart. It's all based on skin color. So, you know, I, I quote, for example, from uh, the book, you know, White Fragility, about what happens there when suddenly whiteness becomes the enemy and not true, not true racism, but just whiteness. So what happened in this church that I described in the passage that you referenced what happened is the pastor decided that in order to keep up with the culture, and he thought he needed to do this to make deference to the minorities, he began to divide the church with a form of social justice that destroys rather than builds, mm -hmm. where there is blaming and where there is shaming. Now, I'm glad we're on this topic. And the reason is because the Bible has an answer for this that cannot be found in critical race theory. Critical race theory can only tear apart. It can never build together. It's, it's intended to divide the races. Saul Alinsky, of course, here in Chicago, began that in the 70s. He began to see that Marxism could be applied to race and destroy the culture because you need chaos before you get a Marxist uh, state. You know, through the providence of God, when my wife and I were in Colorado in a swimming pool, I met a man who worked for Saul Alinsky. He said, we had many good ideas to help the under-resourced communities of Chicago, but Alinsky stopped us. He said, don't solve problems, use them. So what has happened is we have the tearing apart of the various skin colors, the various ethnicities, rather than bringing them together. Now, how does the Bible answer this? Colossians chapter 3, verse 11. We have to take this slowly because this is profound. In Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek, bond or free, Scythian, Scythians, they were marauders that went through the country, barbarians who sometimes acted barbarically, 
But Christ is all and in all. What Paul said is this, Jews don't become Greeks, Greeks don't become Jews, barbarians don't become Scythians, but there is a transcendent unity in Christ that we have to work together for. And if I might put it as clearly as I possibly can in a single sentence, critical race theory keeps tearing apart everything that Jesus died to bring together. It makes us see one another, shout at one another across racial differences and racial walls. And really biblically, the Bible would say, we really don't have a skin problem, we have a sin problem. And that's what needs to be dealt with. But of course today, it's all a matter of skin. I have to add this in the book, White Fragility. You remember the author says that uh, blacks cannot be racist because uh, they're not in power. Now imagine what is she is saying. She's saying that the answer to racism is for one power group to overcome another power group. It's that conflict. Christianity says, no, the answer to racism is to bow humbly together at the foot of the cross and then get up from our knees and ask, what can we do together to make things better? Hmm. That's good. Well, as people are watching this and listening to this, it can feel overwhelming. There's race issues. There's the sexuality component. There's uh, conversations about, you know, who owns the property and should they give it back? I mean, there's all these confusing things going on. And we've talked about just the little compromises one at a time that can be tempting to engage in. But I wonder if you could just give us some really practical advice as Christians living in this culture. Um, what do we need to be thinking about? I know I heard you say on uh, one talk you were giving, you need to be prepared to stand alone. And I loved hearing you say that because I think that's something that in America where we've been kind of comfortable up until now, like maybe we aren't prepared for that, but maybe that's something we need to get prepared for. But what kind of practical things can we be thinking about as Christians to stand for Jesus in this kind of crazy culture. Alisa, before I answer that, you'll notice I always give a preamble to the answer. Mm -hmm. I want to add a footnote to what we talked about, the church compromising. You remember I mentioned, uh, you know, churches that go woke. It's not only because of the racial issue, it has to do with sexual issues. And the reason that that happens is because of a wrong view of love. Love is love, we hear. Well, isn't that interesting? Love can be evil. Let me say it flat out. When Adam and Eve sinned, they didn't stop loving. They just started to love the wrong things. Lovers of pleasure, mm. lovers of self, lovers of money. So it's possible to love evil. So a wrong view of love is taken and it is used to stretch and to justify same-sex marriage and other things all under the banner of love. Herein is love that you keep my commandments, Jesus said. And in the Bible, love is defined. All right, now to your question about standing alone. A school teacher in Chicago here in the Chicago area, in the public school, came to me and said this. He said, I was told that it is not enough for me 
to simply tolerate same-sex marriage. If I do not celebrate it, I could lose my job. All right, for him, it's a line in the sand. He cannot celebrate what God has condemned, so what's he going to do? He has to stand strong, and if he gets fired, my next question is, is the church going to come around him and help him and say, look, we're in a new era. We intend to stand, but we can't stand alone. We need one another because, you know, you have a wife and children. We want to help you financially and in every other way because we're living in new territory. I have visited the Soviet Union even before the wall fell and uh, in some communist countries since the fall. But during those days, boy, Christians hung together. You know, they would meet together to pray when there was food and they fed us very uh, luxuriously. You know, they gave us lots of food. It was brought by multiple families because nobody had enough money to feed us just on their own. We're going to have to rethink what standing alone for Christ really means. So I would say this to your audience. I do not have a one-size-fit-all, but every person has to ask themselves, where do I draw my line? The other day, a businessman texted me and said, can a Christian sign this declaration? It had to do with his business. Hmm. I said, there's some of it that you can sign, but some of it you can't, because some of it had to do with multiple pronouns. So are you going to lose your job? You might have to for the sake of your integrity. And we could go down the line and show where Christians are going to have to take a strong stand. But I believe very deeply it is necessary for us as Americans to rethink our view of suffering for Jesus Christ. You see, because we've also always had it so good, you know, we've had governments that have been generally favorable to Christianity. We've had laws, we've had courts that we could depend on. Well, those days are going away. So the question is this, how are we going to react to this? And do we see suffering as a badge of honor? Or are we to the point where the idea of suffering for Christ seems to be a very ridiculous idea. Who in the world would want to suffer for Christ? But if you look at the Bible, and in the last chapter of my book, I delineate six or seven lessons basically from the New Testament regarding suffering. What you'll discover is suffering always positions people to have a new kind of witness. Even the martyrs had a new kind of witness. Suffering also means that even when we're thrown into the hands of the devil, we are still in the hands of God. And that, of course, is proven by the church in Smyrna. But also, blessed are you. Imagine this. We've quoted this verse many times, but it comes to us with new force in our age. Blessed are you if men revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Great shall be your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets that were before you. So to the believer out there, you're going to have to determine, since we're talking about standing alone, where your line in the sand is. And you're going to have to say with Martin Luther, 
Here I stand, I cannot do otherwise. My conscience is bound by the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant. Now, Luther believed that when he said that, he would be put to death. He was supposed to be put to death, but for some very interesting reasons, he wasn't. So the night before he prayed, I wish I had a copy of the prayer here, Elisa. It is unbelievable. He spilled out his heart to God. And he said, oh God, where are you when I need you? Are you gonna be with me when I'm strung out on the rack? When my body is turned to ashes, will you be there? He had no special sense of God's presence, but he believed in God's bare word. And of course he said those words, which became a great turning point in church history. Mm -hmm. So what we need to do is to understand that we must live for another world. This is so critical. It says in the book of Hebrews that you suffered, and it says you were glad about the plundering of your property. I don't know of a single American, myself included, who would be glad because of the plundering of my property, knowing that you have a reward in heaven. So yeah. ultimately, we're going to be tested as to how much Jesus Christ really means to us, whether or not we have loyalty to him. We may have to put some sacrifices even on our families, but we have to know that ultimately we're accountable to God and we have to say, here I stand, I can do no otherwise, so help me God. Well, I want to thank my guest, Dr. Erwin Lutzer, for such a great discussion. I hope you feel inspired to go out and live boldly for Christ in a culture that is becoming more hostile to what we believe. As you all know, I love Southern Evangelical Seminary. If you're wanting to go deeper into your education, maybe looking at some higher education options, Southern Evangelical Seminary is the seminary I recommend. I'm a student there, and I learn so much every class that I take. Go to ses.edu slash Elisa. You can download a free ebook there and take a look at some of the options. See what SES has to offer. I love that they are standing faithfully for Christ. They're engaging with the topics and culture, and they have a three-pronged approach to every class, apologetics, philosophy, and theology. Every class, you're going to get that three-pronged approach, ses.edu slash Elisa. Well, thanks again for watching today. Be sure and subscribe, rate, and review. It all helps us to get the word out, sharing this out on social media, sending it to your friends, recommending it. Word of mouth is very powerful to get the word out on things like this. But in the meantime, as we serve Christ, let's remember to keep a sharp mind, a soft heart, and a thick skin. We'll see you next time. big money on everything for your next project at Menards. Spring is here making it the perfect time for outdoor projects. Suncast storage sheds are an excellent solution for protecting outdoor lawn and gardening tools. They're easy to assemble and the all-weather construction provides water resistance and UV protection. Say big on Suncast storage sheds. View our selection of Suncast products today in store and on Menards.com. Save big